when I think about studying older African Americans and we're studying 65 and older, I always say this, black folk don't just show up at 65 and start to fall apart. They don't run up in the doctor's office and be like, oh, you're checking the blood pressure, you know, hitting the knee for the kick on the annual physical exam. And next thing you know, you hit the knee and toes fall off and kidneys go to not working. It doesn't work that way. There are experiences that occur across the life course that accumulate to impact those systems along the way. And there are also structures that either didn't give them access so they can maintain the care that they need or there were unequal levels of treatment that were given. So those types of things, when we just capture them at one point in time and we don't delve in and understand these earlier life experiences, I think we're making an egregious mistake because if we don't capture those, how do we think about resolving those? Welcome to the Johns Hopkins School of Nursing podcast, Aging Fast and Slow. This podcast is supported by the National Institute on Aging Pioneer Award. Thanks for listening. We are Dr. Sarah Zanton and Dr. Deidre Cruz, your hosts. For anyone new to our podcast, we speak with scientists, policy experts, and innovators to better understand aging across the life course with a special emphasis on the sustained impact of racism in health the impact this has over the life course, and what can be done to tackle these inequalities. Today's guest is Dr. Roland J. Thorpe, Jr., a gerontologist and social epidemiologist with nationally recognized expertise in minority aging, men's health, and place-based disparities. As the inaugural Associate Vice Provost of Faculty Diversity at Johns Hopkins University, he is a key thought leader in addressing concerns and challenges associated with the diversification of the academic workforce. And we've been working on structural racism issues together since he was a postdoc and I was a PhD student. So this is a deep pleasure to interview you today, Roland. Absolutely. And Dr. Thorpe's research focuses on how race, socioeconomic status, and segregation influence health and well-being for African-Americans, particularly African-American men. Welcome, Dr. Thorpe. Thank you for having me. I'm excited to be here today. It's a pleasure. Fantastic. So so first, can you tell us and, and our audience what brings you to this work and, and how did you kind of get interested in it in the first place? Yeah, I'd be delighted to. Uh, so I'm originally from uh, Macon, Georgia. And so I, I grew up in the Jim Crow South, but certainly after Jim Crow, or at least after it was legally outlawed. And I you know, was raised by my grandmother. And so I remember a lot of the stories she would tell me of where she could and could not go as a child. And I always wondered why that was the case. And then on top of that, thinking about uh, my career in studying health disparities, particularly by race, it's, uh, it's no surprise now that racism drives these racial differences given what we know about race differences and what undergirds those race differences, which is which is racism. And so I've always wondered and, and, and thought about that and tying into uh, one of the areas of research, I do place-based, disparities, largely place-based, largely as a, uh, segregation and thinking about how segregation has, and those factors has a lingering effect on health. And I think about all of this within the context of my lived experience in Macon, Georgia. So that's how I really got into it. Uh, and, and as we, we all of us know that it's been a journey 
as it relates to the evolution of the science and the toleration uh, of people making contributions with racism uh, as an um, exposure leading to poor health outcomes. Mm, thank you. So let's talk about structural racism for a minute. You talked about segregation. Overall, how would you define structural racism, and either historically, culturally, institutionally, interpersonally, and how do you think that definition has changed over time? So it yes and all. So it's <laughs> yes and all. I believe that uh, structural racism is this combination of different systems operating together to produce these discriminatory policies and acts that then can lead to downstream poor health outcomes. We've seen this, you all know, as in, in our work, we've seen this evolution of terminology that has changed over time uh, to get us to structural racism. And I think where we are now is, is very nuanced now. And I think it's important for us to make sure when we're using the terminology, we, we're using it in its appropriate space now. You know, and I, the definition that I I like is the one that was put forth by um, uh, Zinzi Bailey and colleagues, this totality of ways in which these, uh, which fosters racial discrimination across different uh, systems. You know, those systems uh, haven't changed. Uh, the culture and the history hasn't changed, but then there's all, there's this belief that it doesn't exist anymore. Mm. Yeah, really good point. Yeah, so um, so important to the work that you do is is thinking about how we go about sort of measuring structural racism or, or or structural discrimination more broadly. So, what do you feel when you think about it? What do you feel is lacking in in the way we measure structural racism? So, I think what I think is lacking is this uh, a couple things. I think, well, first, I want to uh, acknowledge all of the different measures that are out there. And I think those measures have made contributions. And I think as, as the science around this evolved, we certainly have some measures to build off prior measures. I think what's lacking now is the one thing that we're grappling with is that how to get all these different complex pieces into what a total measure of structural racism. Oftentimes the measures, what we've seen in the literature, and, and I've published on them, so I'm not saying that they're bad. So, you know, but I think what, well, it's just one dimension. But when you think about a person's lived experience, it's not just one dimension. It may be a big dimension of it, but it's not just one dimension of how we get to structural racism. And so what I really think about is I think we made a major contribution. Our group made a major contribution when we came out with our paper showing this framework, how we wanted to operationalize it across several different domains. I found that to be a unique way that hasn't been done anywhere else. Um, but there were some, uh, what was lacking there is trying to, is what we're still grappling is how to obtain the most relevant data and the data that we can get in the best shape we can get it. And just understanding there are spaces where data were, in, in my opinion, intentionally not collected. That, that, that's my opinion, because there's some, there's some courthouses you go to that the documents that should be there are probably not there. Mm, absolutely. And, and so in thinking about those challenges, how do you view them kind of across the life course, right? So if we if we want to collect this information, we want to have these measures, where do you see as the key challenges with respect to having that information across an individual's life yeah. course? Yeah, I think it's a I think a life course approach is very is is very necessary. I mean, if we're gonna do this, I think that the key is for us to think about one's lived experience. And, and one's lived experience is not just this 
this point in time, you know, for example, when I think about studying older African-Americans and we're studying 65 and older, I always say this, black folk don't just show up at 65 and start to fall apart. They don't run up in the doctor's office and be like, oh, you're checking the blood pressure, you know, hitting the knee for the kick and on the annual physical exam. And next thing you know, you hit the knee and toes fall off and kidneys go to not work. It doesn't work that way. There are experiences that occur across the life course that accumulate to impact those systems along the way. And there are also structures that either didn't give them access so they can maintain the care that they need or there were unequal levels of uh, treatment that were given, or there have been systems that have been in place to mistreat people that people just don't want to trust the healthcare system. So those types of things, when we just capture them at one point in time and we don't talk about, or we don't try to delve in and understand these earlier life experiences, I don't think, I think we're making an egregious mistake and I don't think we're going to capture the full totality of ways in which systems operate. Because if we don't capture those, how do we how do we think about resolving those? Yeah, yeah, great point. So we've published a paper together in the Journal of Urban Health in 2021 called Quantifying Older Black Americans' Exposure to Structural Racial Discrimination. And you referred to that a little bit ago. And the challenges in looking across domains and across the life course and then how, what kind of models do one use? And we were having a convening soon with artificial intelligence and big data experts about ways that they model across domains. You know, how do the weather people know how to put in, you know, the wind rates and the air temperature and the water temperature to come up with that there's going to be mm-hmm. a hurricane? And um, that we're trying to learn a little bit about that. But just, I know you have so much methodological expertise in terms of statistical modeling. And do you have hopes for this kind of approach where it's not a linear regression or, a, you know, another kind of logistic regression, but something that's more complex and adaptive to help us understand how to measure structural racism? Yeah, not only do I have hope, I, I think I have insight. I just need, <laughs> I just think I need some help from my colleagues in engineering. Mm-hmm. There's these causal loop diagram of the system dynamic modeling that I think would be could be applied here in the appropriate space. And so I'm so happy that we're getting ready to have this convening to think about that. And so with those, with the the little I know about the system dynamic modeling, what I'm excited about is the fact that in those modeling systems, they have feedback loops. And oftentimes we don't have feedback loops in these straight linear and our traditional regression methods. And those traditional methods doesn't afford us the opportunity to model the types of complex and nuanced relationships that we want. Because I don't, I personally don't believe that structural racism is linear. I think it's multifaceted. I think it's multiplicative because it's a system we're trying to model. And if you imagine modeling a system, it gets pretty difficult to model a system on a traditional OLS functional form. I don't think it fits well. And I think it can have the opportunities to provide us with information that might not necessarily be relevant or appropriate. Great. Well, I can feel all the good people Googling to learn more about that, and that'll be great. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Well, you're you're so prolific that we wanted to make reference to another one of your articles, um, and this is the one that you wrote that was called What Structural Racism Is or Is Not and How to Measure It that was published in the American Journal of Epidemiology. And in that article, you refer to structural racism as a public health issue. Can you tell us a little bit more about that and and, and why you view it as a public health issue? 
Yeah. So first of all, I want to say thanks to my uh, to my first author, Dr. Lorraine Dean, who who worked on this this important what I believe this important piece of work. I think it, you know it's a structural racism where it has to be a public health issue if we're talking about solving some complex uh, health problems that disproportionately affects different groups. It's important for us to consider that as a public health problem, and also when considered as a public health problem, it opens up different doors that were not open previously. For, let me give you an example. So it was only when NIH or, or the Department of Health and Human Services, which includes NIH and CDC, they come forward after the horrific uh, events of George Floyd in 2020. They come forward later on and say this is a public health issue, and, a, and almost immediately, well, let me say this, faster than what the government usually operates in, there are grant applications. Oh, and, and before, you couldn't get a grant application in with the word racism, or if you put it in there, oftentimes you would get the feedback of where you need a comparison group or these type, these some of, some of these nonsensical comments we would receive. But I think that if it were not for that, I don't think we'll be moving or advancing where we are now. I do think it's a public health issue. I also think it's a population health issue. You know, I know we're here talking about structural racism and we're focusing largely on blacks and whites, but there are other uh, groups also that um, that do experience some racism, right? Or some type of ism. And I think this this could certainly be a model for which those groups to move forward and, and as relates to science and being able to implement science and hopefully be able to create some evidence that can be translated into creating policies. But with policy comes politics. So <laughs> Yeah. It often does. And we'll go we'll go to the next question after that. So we don't want to get it. We don't wanna, I don't think this is what the deep this is what this is about, but yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so we've we've talked about structural racism, and I wanted to get your take about structural resilience. We're we're also doing work on that together, as as we know. And anytime there's a a challenge, which there are everyday kinds of challenges when as people face structural racism, often there you know kind of grows up some resilience that's not just inside somebody, not not just that they're a good coper or that religious, but that there are structures around them, you know, churches or communities or families or networks. So I'm interested in your thoughts about structural resilience and also if you think we'll have an easier time measuring it once we nail how to measure structural racism or if you think it'll have different challenges. So, yeah, so I think the structural resilience is just like racism. There are different systems that operate together that that create that, if you will, force field. But when you rebound, it doesn't the impact is lessened because you have those different structures operating together. Right. So I think that's the. That's the thing that I'm really interested in learning more about. And I'm excited about the opportunity to think about this idea of uh, structural resilience. And I don't think it's, I don't think it's just a sum of the different types of individual, uh, individual measures of resilience you have. I think the individual measures should operate synergistically with the structural measures to see how does the structures impact those individual measures of resilience, similar to that of, of structural racism and, and individual uh, and perceived racism. Mm. I think this structural resilience is very interesting to me because we haven't talked about the life course approach to the structural resilience, right? So how do people who've lived through some of these horrific areas uh, of structural uh, racism, if you talk to them, what 
what would they identify are structures of resilience? I'm, so if you were talk to, ooh, well, if you talk to my uncle now, the only living uncle now, he would probably tell you the structure, the most structure that he had was in church. Because African-Americans, traditionally, that was the institution that broadly brought people together, particularly in the deep south. And so he would say that. But I wonder what one of my mom's good friends who grew up as a poor white woman in the south, I wonder what she would say is her structures of resilience across her life course as, as they move through. Because those structures, they can change because the way we occupy space. And so I think they can change. So I just wonder how this is going to play out. And I'm very excited about how the life course is going to play out in, in with regard to resilience. Well, in the um, initial interviews that we've done with people where we try to, you know, people are much more able to talk about interpersonal, you know, you know mm-hmm. but um, as we've tried, if we talk to them about each stage of the life course and what structures have supported them, of course, the church comes up a lot. So does social workers in the schools, you know, so, mm-hmm. so, and so that would be a policy thing in a way and mm-hmm. a human. Yeah. Um, right. And the other thing that's been coming up a lot, which, you know, we've known this since like William Julius Wilson's work a long time ago, is that neighborhoods that grew up that were very segregated Mm-hmm. where there was no opportunity for for middle-class African-Americans to, to live somewhere else. Mm-hmm. They grew up with the poor kids and the professionals all living near each other. Mm-hmm. And so a big structural resilience point for, for kids who were growing up poor was they knew the dentist down the block mm-hmm. and the multiple school teachers who lived on the same block who could help them with their fractions if they weren't getting it in school. Yeah. And, um, of course, we want people to be able to live anywhere they want. But what's happened is that for some really under-resourced neighborhoods, there's not a heterogeneity of socioeconomic class. Yeah. And so those kids aren't getting help with their fractions from the teacher nearby because the teacher doesn't live there. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Right. Wow. Yeah. Having grown up right. with the teacher in the household, uh-huh. it's, uh, <laughs> that uh-huh. rings a lot. Very, very true to me. So, yeah, looking across all that's going to be so, so essential. Um, so, Roland, you you touched on this a little bit, but how do you see when you look at your the body of your work that you've done and that you continue to do that we're so grateful for? Um, how do you see the translation of your research into policies and practices that that can have kind of real world impact? Where do, where do you see as the kind of um, points of translation? So yeah, so the work now that I'm doing with black men. So I'll give you a real world example. So I'm working with a uh, with an organization that focuses on prostate cancer survivors and black men. And the big issue now is there, they are working with, I think it's Prince George County Health Department. They're trying to make sure there's access for all men to at least get a PSA. I think, I think that's, that's really important. And I've shared some data with them and work with them, share some data with them to say that if you don't get these preventive screenings, these are the types of things that can happen. And, you know, men in, in general, uh, men tend to think that they have this idea that they're, they're, they're uh, we feel like we can't, you know, nothing can harm us until we, t- till we get that teachable moment. Right, and the teachable moment can be you know, finding you got find out you have you know type two diabetes, prostate cancer. Then now, after we do that, and we get the talking to by the nurse practitioner or the physician, then we we want to go Google and read everything we can read. And uh, so, I one of the things I'm trying to work on now with with my research is that, and and I'm running into some of these facets 
uh, or institutional racism is what I'm running into when I think about it is that some of the some of the men that I work with, they don't they don't believe the health system is designed to help them. And, you know, that while that may be true, we still need to get into the doctor because if you don't get into the doctor and then, you know, you got this cancer, the metastasis, you know, we always show black men show up, uh, particularly uh, with advanced stages, diagnosis of advanced stages with fewer treatment options. I'm not looking for a policy. I'm just trying to get my hard-headed brothers to go to the doctor, the ones that got insurance. What I mean, there's no excuse. You got insurance. Sign up and, and, go, and go to the doctor. That's really, that's really important to me. And to think about the other things that will uh, prioritize your ability to go to the doctor and improve your health. Mm-hmm. Um, so we've got one more question for you. Yeah. We'd like to ask everyone, what's one of the best pieces of advice you have ever gotten? Yeah. So, um, one of the best pieces of advice I've ever got in life or in academia? Uh, either. You choose. Could be both. Okay. Could be. So, one of the best people. So, I'll do both. I'll do both. <laughs> uh, so, in academia, I have a group of mentors. And the best piece of advice I've gotten as it relates to my career, I got it from, uh, I got it from actually Keith Whitfield. One day I was, uh, a paper got rejected and I was like, ah, I'm sick of this. I don't know. You know, can I do this? And he told me, he said, you know, if you don't do this and keep moving forward, then who will? I think you have a, you have a unique skill set, and I think you need to move forward and trust yourself. So the biggest piece I got from him out of all that was to trust yourself. So now, you know, I pay it forward with my students. With my students, I tell them to trust the process. Early career faculty, I tell them to trust their training because they've been through the process, the research process to get to the training. So I do that. And then, you know, uh, in my life, you know, the piece of advice that sticks with me is my grandmother who raised me. She told me, whatever you do, be the best at it and leave the world in a better place it found it. Mm-hmm. And I just hope mm-hmm. after all this is said and done, and I look back over my body of work, I hope that I have left the uh, academic, uh, you know, the academic community in a better place than, than I found it. Thank you, Roland, for sharing your work. For our listeners, check out our website, nursing.jhu.edu backslash aging fast and slow for the articles and resources referenced in the episode. Have comments, questions, or guest suggestions? Reach out to us at agingfastandslow at jhu.edu. And if you enjoyed this podcast, please share it with a friend, rate it, or write us a review. Special thanks to Jennifer McCord for editing and sound design, Rafe Reggie and Florentina Costaca for technical expertise, Brian Fitzek for production, and Tim Carl and Danielle Kress for web design. See you next time on Aging Fast and Slow.